There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish. And he travels to every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor. He calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, bringing tears to the eyes of those who never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. Most people hate him, yet everyone fears him. His name? Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text, and someday every one of us will be his sermon. Amen? No? Or oh my, maybe? Death is not a fun topic to talk about, is it? In our world today, we go out of our way to not even think about it. Writer William Somerset Maugham once said, Death is a very dull, dreary affair, and my advice to you is to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. Many would prefer that, right? To have nothing to do with death. But the problem is, there is no way of avoiding it and no way to stop it when it comes. Death is relentless. It is certain. The odds are one out of one that we're going to die. There are no exceptions. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad, religious or godless. Death is impartial. It doesn't matter how significant, how wealthy, how intelligent one is, those people still die with the unknown, the poor, and the foolish. And get this, if you weren't already cheered up enough this morning, we don't know when our dying day is going to be, do we? All we know is that it will be. Think of it in this way. It's like everyone who has ever lived has taken a number at the revenue office and the person behind the desk is just calling the numbers out at random. Some numbers have already been called. Numbers of people you know. And though you have a number and know that number is going to be called, you just don't know when. That's it. That's the truth of the matter. And this reality that we're all going to die someday, maybe today, has driven some to madness. And the reason why is because for some, this world is all there is. You strip that away and they are left with nothing. But here's the good news for us believers. God tells us in His Word that this life is not all there is. Death does not have the final say over you. We don't just go around once, we go around twice. We do. And that's what we've been discussing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
For the Christian, all fear of death is canceled because of the future hope that we have in the physical and bodily resurrection. What we have learned over the past few weeks is that though our body is one day going to the grave if Jesus delays his coming, God tells us in his word that there is also a day in the future when we're going to come out the other side glorified with new bodies that are fit for a new existence in the presence of our God and King. That's the truth for the Christian. There's a magnificent mausoleum that holds the mortal remains of Queen Victoria and her husband, whom she loved with all her heart. And above that mausoleum are inscribed the words, Here at last I will rest with thee, and with thee in Christ I shall also rise again. That's the Christian hope. And that's the message of 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, please turn there now. 1 Corinthians 15. Today, we are finishing our great chapter on the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. And for some of you who've been in and out the past few weeks, let me give you a brief recap of what we have learned so far. Now, we, we have been talking all along in this series through 1 Corinthians about the fact that the church at Corinth was one messy church, wasn't it? They had all kinds of issues. And we learn in chapter 15, along with their behavioral and relational problems, they also had doctrinal issues. Now, that should not be a surprise to us, right? When there's behavioral problems, relational problems, there's got to be a deeper-seated doctrinal issue and there was at Corinth though they believed in the physical and bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead and though they believed in some sort of future existence with him they denied a future physical and bodily resurrection of God's people from the dead so Paul knowing this is where they are doctrinally makes a detailed and thorough argument in favor of the physical and bodily resurrection of Christ and of his people. In the first half of chapter 15, Paul builds his argument by first discussing the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 1 through 11, he gives evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And in verses 12 through 34, he explains the importance of it. And the reason why he does this is because Paul wants to show them that there is this seamless connection between the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of believers on the final day. He explains to them that what is true of Jesus is true of Jesus' followers. And after the buildup in the first part of this chapter, Paul then transitions by explaining what the future resurrection of God's people is going to be like. Because apparently, there were some, like there are everywhere, there were some skeptical Corinthians who had asked Paul, okay, Paul, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? They were being sarcastic and asking sort of jokingly, all right, Paul, you want to talk about the future physical and bodily resurrection of the godly? Tell us, how does that happen? 
And if you remember from last week, Paul goes on to give an incredible description of what it will be like in that day when God's people receive new bodies. He explained that the future you and the future me will be unique and remarkable. Though God has made us unique and extraordinary already, Paul explains that, that there is coming a day when God is going to raise us up to be a different kind, a better kind of remarkable. He says there's coming a day when we will burst forth from the grave in a physical and bodily sense and will exist in a similar yet unique and more glorious way. He also tells his readers that our new bodies will not only be unique and remarkable, but they will be new and improved. He explains that they will be eternal and magnificent and powerful. They will be made for us, but they'll be fit for heaven. They will be fit for eternity in the presence of our God and King. Well, in the last section here in verses 50 through 58, as Paul reflects on what Christ has done for us and what the future holds for the godly as he anticipates that day when the dead in Christ will rise and be given new bodies, he ends this chapter with a wonderful passage of praise. This passage should probably be sung as much as it is preached. John MacArthur said of this passage, a celestial symphony ought to accompany this section. Well, we don't have a celestial symphony this morning, but we do have an awesome praise band, don't we? Yeah. So with that in mind, I thought we'd do something a bit unique this morning. As I preach through this wonderful message, you're going to be involved in this sermon in a very special way. What I'm going to do is I'm going to preach this sermon in parts. And after each point, our praise band is going to lead us in a response song that we will sing in response to what we have just heard. So it's going to be a bit different this morning, but I really do believe that this passage calls for it. And I really do believe that it will be a meaningful and worshipful time for many of you here this morning. We're going to apply this sermon right here, right now, this morning. During this sermon, we are going to praise the Lord for our future resurrection. Let's look now at the different points of praise. First, we should praise the Lord for our future transformation. Praise the Lord for our, your future transformation. Like we discussed last week, there is going to be a great transformation that is going to take place in the future. And it's something that must take place, Paul tells us here in verse 50. Look at what he says. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. And he makes the same point in verse 53. He says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. In other words, Paul is saying we have to be transformed. We have to be different in order to inherit the kingdom of God. We can't be earthy like Adam, as Paul explained in the previous passage. But we must be heavenly like Christ. Look at verse 49 again. 
chapter 15. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He's talking about Jesus there. We've been, we have to be uh, transformed. We have to have a body fit for that existence, fit for heaven. He says we cannot enter into God's eternal kingdom with bodies like these. Bodies that are natural, perishable, dishonorable, and weak. There's no way to dwell in an incorruptible, immortal kingdom in a mortal, incorruptible state. You must be given new bodies. Bodies fit for that existence. Bodies that are spiritual, imperishable, honorable, and strong. Now, all of this is exciting, isn't it? But it, it, it raises another question. And the question is this. If we're going to die and our bodies are going to decay and then go into the ground until the resurrection brings them out again, what about those who don't die before Jesus comes? What's going to happen to the Christians who are still here, still alive? Paul says, that's easy, I'll tell you. Verse 51, he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, mystery here is a word that doesn't mean something you cannot understand, but something that has been hidden that it's about to be revealed. Paul says, I'm going to tell you something that has been hidden from you. He says, we shall not all sleep. Now, what does he mean there when he says sleep? Well, oftentimes when Paul refers to sleep, He's referring to death for a believer. Because for a believer, death is like sleep because the sting of death has been removed. And we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But it refers to death. He says, we shall not all sleep. We shall not all die, but we will all be what? Changed. He says, here's the mystery. Those who are still alive when Jesus returns will be changed. Now, how is that going to happen? Look at verse 52. Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. First notice, it's going to be in a moment. It's not going to be a long, drawn-out process. It's going to happen in a moment. And that word moment refers to the smallest amount of time of which there is no smaller. Paul says, in the most finite unit of time, we will be changed. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. I read where one commentator said that's the amount of time it takes the, the light to go from the iris to the retina. If you're wondering how long that takes, see Dr. Sands in here. Where's Scott? You can ask him. I have no idea. He's around, there he is. Yeah, I have no idea, but it's going to be quick. That's the point, okay? Paul says, at the last trumpet, he says the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and we will all be changed. Now listen to this. This is very, very interesting. At times in Scripture, trumpets were used to assemble people before God. In Exodus 19, we're introduced to this idea. Remember in this chapter, the people of God are near Mount Sinai. And we're told in Exodus 19, 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. God's really letting them know he's up there, right? 
on Sinai. Now get this, it says this, and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Can you imagine that? Be terrifying. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So the trumpet here is used to summon God's people before himself. And this is what that future trumpet is going to signal. It's going to signal the end of the church age. It's going to signal the end of our struggle with death. And it's going to summon God's people to assemble before him. When that trumpet sounds, all of those bodies of believers that are in the grave are going to hear it. And they're going to come out in a glorified state and join those who are still here, who are in Christ, who have been transformed and believers. We're all going to assemble before the Lord. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like when the graves start releasing their victims? There's an old writing that was written about a regiment during the Civil War that gives a great illustration of this, and I'll read it for you. It says, During the Civil War, a regiment of soldiers were compelled to sleep in the open field one winter night. In the early morning, the chaplain arose and saw a very strange sight. During the night, several inches of snow had fallen, completely covering the tired, slumbering soldiers who were bundling in their blankets and thus caused the entire field to be filled with many small mounds like newly made graves. All of a sudden, the bugler sounded reveille, and almost instantly a soldier came forth from each mound. And the chaplain thought of 1 Corinthians 15, 52 that says, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we will all be changed. Isn't that an awesome picture? Paul says, when the trumpet sounds, those who are in Christ, who have died, and those who are still alive, they will all be changed. What a day that's going to be. When the grave give up the dead, when those who are still here, who are in Christ, will be changed. So what we're going to do at this time is we're going to sing a song in response to that truth in response to all that Christ has done for us. And as we sing this song this morning, my hope is that your thoughts would go to that glorious day when we will all be changed. My prayer is that as you sing this morning, as you reflect on that day when we are given a new body fit for heaven, think about that day when we will worship before our God and King. Stand with us and sing, please. Amen. What a glorious day. Well, not only are we to praise the Lord for our future transformation, but number two, we're also to praise Him for our future victory. Praise the Lord for our future victory. We have victory to look forward to, folks. Look at verse 54. Paul says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Two key words I want to highlight here. The words when and the words then. Paul says when 
the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Believers, these two words, when and then, tell us that our victory is all but certain. Notice the statement in quotations. Death is swallowed up in victory. Paul here is quoting an Old Testament phrase found in Isaiah 25, verse 8. In the Hebrew, it is literally translated, death is swallowed up forever. I like that better, don't you? Paul says, when this transformation comes, victory can be proclaimed. On that day, we can shout aloud our victory cry, death is swallowed up forever. Now that word swallowed is important. It has to do with a total doing away with, a total destruction, a total annihilation. When Christ returns and we are transformed, there will be a total end to death. Right now, death is not yet swallowed up, is it? Right now, death is still an enemy, isn't it? You may not fear death, but there is a sense in which death still violates you. It invades your world. It ends long love relationships. It still takes people we love too soon. It still snatches up souls and takes them into hell. Death is still an enemy. It still invades us and it hits us with tremendous blows. But there is coming a time when death will be swallowed up forever, believers. R.C.H. Linsky once said it like this. I love this. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay will utterly be reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. What a great word. Well, in response to this incredible victory, Paul taunts death. By quoting Hosea 13, 14, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, that word sting has to do with the sting of like a, a bee or a strike of a serpent. Though death still violates us today, it still invades our world. The stinger of death, the strike of death has been removed. How? Because of Christ. You see, death plunged its stinger into him at the cross and it stayed there. Christ bore the whole sting of death for us so that death for us who are in him has no sting. So though death put the stinger in Christ, Christ returned the favor by putting the stinger back into death, defeating death by death to give us life. That's the gospel, folks. Paul goes on to explain this a bit further. He knows he can't just leave it at that, but he's got to give us a little theology to clarify a few things. He says the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Here's what he's saying. Death ultimately does not harm us believers. It, it, it violates our world. It, it separates us from our loved ones. But we have a blessed hope, right? A future hope of an existence with in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. So, so 
though it buzzes around a bit and bothers us, it does not ultimately sting us unless there is sin there. He says the sting of death is sin. And this is not just any sin, but the sin of an unbeliever. Sin that has not been paid for. Sin that has not been forgiven. But for a believer, there is no sting in death because our sins have been removed. They have been forgiven. Believers, Jesus took the sting, the strike of death for us. He took on all of our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us and took the strike of death for us so that we could be forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean you don't still mess up, right, believers? You do. But if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, that means that your sins are covered. They're already forgiven. They're already paid for. Paul also explains that the power of sin is the law. What makes sinners sinners is that God has a certain standard of conduct. If you had the attitude of do whatever you want, it doesn't matter to me, there wouldn't be any sin. But God has said, this is right, and this is wrong. He has set up standards that we have failed to meet, which makes sin a reality. Now, folks, if that were the end of the story for us, that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, we would be in a bad way, wouldn't we? Because we've all fallen short of God's standard. We've all sinned against Him. And we're all, each and every one of us, are unable to atone for our sin on our own. Therefore, we are all deserving of death. Thankfully, Paul says, praise be to God that he sent us his son to fulfill the whole law for us and to die in our place, to pay the price for sin so that sin could be swallowed up forever this time we're going to have our praise band lead us in singing victory in Jesus and as we sing this song I want you to really reflect on verse 57 of chapter 15 where Paul says thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ stand and sing please and aren't these guys great they made my job easy <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So we have praised the Lord for our future transformation and for our future victory. Lastly, in this text, Paul ends by calling for believers to praise the Lord for their purposeful present. Praise the Lord for your purposeful present. Here we go. We've been camping out in the future. For the past several weeks, focusing on the then and there and now, Paul brings us back to the here and now. Look at what he says in verse 58. Therefore, in light of all of these things I've been telling you, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul tells us two things here. He says, stand firm and work hard. Now, these two things sound contradictory, but they go hand in hand. 
First, he says, because of these truths that I've shared with you, because the resurrection is true, believers stand firm, be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast is an adjective that means to be sitting. Paul says, take your seat on this truth. Be fixed on it, settled on it, seated, firm, and solid on the truth of the resurrection. Don't let your theology be like that of Ephesians 4.14, where we're told they were tossed back and forth and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Paul says, what I've told you is true, therefore stand firm on it. Take your seat on that truth. Why? Because Paul knows that if this core doctrine of our future resurrection ever wavers, we will begin to live like the world because if we question the eternal and we lose our eternal kingdom perspective, we will fail to live with eternity in mind in the present. It just makes sense, right? Therefore, we must stand firm in this truth and must not let our flesh the world or the enemy move us from it. Second, he says, work hard with this truth, the truth of your future resurrection in mind. Now, there are two words in the second half of this verse that I want to highlight, that I want to focus on. It's the word work, and it's the word abounding. Let's first look at the word work. This word literally means to labor to the point of exhaustion and perspiration. Paul says, Work until you're weary. Listen, folks, there is no vacation in your spiritual life. You're to always be seeking to grow in your knowledge of God and in His Word and seeking and looking for ways to serve Him. You are always to be living with His glory in mind, for His glory alone. There is no rest for the weary. you got to work hard. The word abounding... Kind of, he, he even emphasizes this even greater by mentioning the word, using the word abounding. It means to overdo it on purpose. Believers, we are to be going above and beyond in our spiritual lives, purposefully overdoing it for the Lord. Don't ever let it be said of you that you settled for a subpar Christian life. Paul says, don't do it. Someone once asked a well-known pastor, do you think you'll ever retire? And he didn't even have to pause for a moment with this response. He said, yeah, when I'm dead and laid out. There are some who say, you know, I've given so much to the Lord, it's time for me to put it in cruise. Let somebody else take the reins. No, Paul says, we got to get with it. We got to get busy. I'm not saying you shouldn't rest physically. But even in your leisure time, you should be making that time count for the Lord. Doing all things for His glory. And praising Him for the fact that He's given you a purposeful present. Folks, so many don't have that. They don't. They're living from this day to the next. They're wandering through life aimlessly, not knowing that their time on earth will soon be over. There was a missionary by the name of David Brainerd who went to minister to the American Indians and he died before the age of 30. 
But if you read a biography on his life, you will see he lived a fuller life in his few short years than so many who lived to be 80 to 100 years or more. God used him in magnificent ways in those few short years of his life to make an impact for him. And he lived his life to the fullest for Christ and for his kingdom. And now the work that he did echoes through the halls of eternity. There's a great saying I love. It goes like this. It says, this life will soon be passed. Only that which is done for Christ will last. So very true. Believers, we need to be living with this mentality in mind, living today with that day in mind. Let me end with this, and then we're going to sing one more song of praise. Then we're going to have communion this morning. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're one of those I described at the beginning of this sermon who don't like to, to consider the sobering truth that you're going to die someday, maybe today. I wish I could bring you some comfort this morning, words of comfort, and tell you, don't worry about it. It's not going to be anytime soon, but I can't give that guarantee to anyone, not even myself. Truth is, none of us know. But what I can do is this. I can tell you how to be prepared when that day comes. I can give you a hope that lasts beyond the grave. I can explain to you how the sting of death can be removed from your life this morning. Scripture tells us that God, when He initially created man, He made man holy and happy and in right relationship with Himself. But many of you know the story, right? You know what happened. Man chose to go at life on his own and reject God's rule and reign in his life. And as a result of that act of disobedience, sin entered into the world and ruined and wrecked that perfect relationship that man had initially with God. And as a result of that sin, death came to us all, both physically, but most impo- more importantly, most importantly, spiritually. Like we've said already, death is the greatest consequence of our sin and the greatest enemy that we have in this world now here's the good news though that's the case though we have sinned against God and severed that relationship with him and we now die as a result of our sinfulness you know what God demonstrated his great love for us by reaching out to us again through the person in work of his son the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to be for us what we could not be for ourselves perfect inside and out to make us right with God and how did he do it this is so amazing he did it by willingly taking on accepting and experiencing the greatest consequence of sin for us Christ willingly went to the cross and died for us he took on the sins of the world your sins and my sins so that you and I if we trust in him could be made right with God he experienced death for us not just physically but spiritually why so that we could live Jesus conquered death with death to give us life that's the gospel So for those of you here this morning who are discouraged about the fact that you're going to die someday, maybe today, consider the words of Christ in John 11, 25 and 26. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What Jesus offers us is better than a long life here on earth. He offers us eternal life with him. How about that? You want to be ready for your dying day? You need the work that Christ has done applied to your life. And you can have that work applied to you today if you would trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time here this morning, for the encouragement that we receive from you and your word, how it strengthens our hearts, how it gives us joy and peace in the midst of this chaotic world in which we live. We're so thankful that all things are in your hands, that there is hope for the future of your people, that there is a future resurrection that we who are in you will experience in the future. Oh, Lord, how it has tremendous implications on our life today in the present. Lord, may each one of us in here commit afresh this morning to invest in your kingdom work now and forever. May we give you our best, and may it never be said of us that we gave you anything less. Father, for those here this morning who are without this hope, I pray that you do a work right here and right now in their hearts and lives. Turn them to you. Convict them of sin. Lead them to salvation in your Son so that they can leave here this very day with this hope. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.